0: Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of racism, police brutality, and killing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: On February 3rd, 2013, Christopher Dorner killed a young couple in cold blood. Four days later, he fired at multiple police officers, wounding two and leaving one dead.
0: Practically every law enforcement agency in Southern California was on his tail. It's possible this was exactly what Dorner wanted. He thought of himself as a hunter luring the authorities to their graves.
1: But he wasn't stupid. He knew he'd never win a direct confrontation against an entire police force. To continue his one-man war in the LAPD, he had to be strategic. So, after taking Officer Michael Crane's life in Riverside, California, Dorner fled east to the resort town of Big Bear.
0: There, he would lead police on one final chase. In the last episode, we followed the police as they turned Big Bear upside down, searching for the killer.
1: Today, we'll rewind a bit to what Dorner did during that time but it will also cover some of the public's reactions during and after the hunt.
0: Because while Dorner evaded the police, his crusade against the LAPD was fiercely debated in the court of public opinion. His rhetoric divided Southern California, making one of the biggest questions at the time...
1: Whose side were you on? Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. And today, we're returning to our special series about the most dangerous and heart-pounding manhunts in history. We'll learn the top-secret methods used to track down fugitives, and the techniques they use to stay one step ahead. This episode concludes the manhunt for Christopher Dorner. An ex-LAPD officer who, in 2013, turned on his former comrades and became a killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
0: Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: Last time, we followed ex-cop Christopher Dorner as he carried out a bloody vendetta against the LAPD. Years after the department fired him, Dorner murdered both civilians and cops in what he claimed was a quest to clear his name and expose police discrimination.
0: This time, the manhunt draws to a close. Law enforcement finally traps Dorner and slowly closes in. But when it's all said and done, the public is left with more questions than answers. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: In the early morning hours of February 7th, Darner passed through Big Bear's Main Street, then drove deeper into the wilderness. But when he tried to climb an icy mountain road, his Nissan Titan got stuck. There wasn't much time to think. The police were right on his tail. So he abandoned the vehicle. He left behind a stash of weapons, a tent, and a small camping stove. Perhaps hoping to throw investigators off and maintain the element of surprise, he tried to burn the evidence before he left, using a canister of propane.
0: Now, saddled with a few guns and all the supplies he could carry, he faced a decision. He could try and make camp in the freezing woods, but without a tent and stove, it wouldn't be easy. And a fire was bound to draw the authorities' attention anyway. He might be able to steal another vehicle and escape, but he wasn't interested in turning his back and becoming a fugitive. He wasn't a criminal. He was a soldier.
1: We covered this moment in our previous episode, but from the police's perspective. If you recall, the LAPD saw the abandoned car and asked themselves, did the killer flee or was he planning to make one final stand in Big Bear?
0: Well, as Dorner saw it, his former employer had dragged his name through the mud and he would make them pay by any means necessary until they admitted they were wrong. So no, he wouldn't run forever. To get what he wanted, he would have to make the police come to him.
1: After burning his car, Dorner hiked through the snow, staying low to avoid being seen. He looked carefully for a safe spot to hole up in, Eventually, he saw the Mountain Vista Resort in the distance, breaking through the trees.
0: It was a modest 13-unit inn. Its quaint wooden exterior made it a warm, attractive resort for many tourists. But as a trained former naval officer, Dorner was likely more interested in the inn's strategic position. From the front, he had a wide view of the road and entrance points, while the rear of the inn was protected by the tree line.
1: He crept up to the property, listening carefully for the sounds of tenants. Eventually, he came to Unit 203. He couldn't hear anyone inside, so he tried the door and found it unlocked. He peeked in and started securing the apartment room by room.
0: Law enforcement calls this process clearing an area. It's a potentially deadly task since it can leave cops exposed from all sides. The safest response is to call for backup and use a method called push, where multiple officers enter a room and spread out within the space. So no matter where the suspect hides, at least one officer is in a position to engage them. That way, blind spots are limited. But when a cop is on their own, they're taught to use a method called peek instead.
1: That's when an officer carefully looks around a corner or through an entryway, only exposing their head and arms. This allows them to stay in a position to fire if necessary. It also reduces their exposure, making them the smallest possible target. They're also encouraged to keep moving as much as they can, too. That can potentially throw an assailant off guard.
0: Dorner likely used a version of this method to scour Unit 203, methodically checking the corners and bathroom for signs of life. With so many cops swarming Big Bear, he couldn't be too careful.
1: But in the end, it seemed like the place was vacant.
0: He was safe for the moment.
1: At the inn, Dorner made himself at home. He locked the door and chowed down on some trail mix or one of the quick survival meals he'd brought along. A small balcony was behind him, blanketed in soft snow. The view would have been enchanting to most guests, but for Dorner, it was practical. Another vantage point he could use to shoot and kill.
0: According to the Los Angeles Times, Dorner stayed in Unit 203 for five long days. For the most part, he kept quiet and watched through the windows for any approaching authorities. There didn't appear to be any looming danger, just an elderly couple who maintained the units now and then.
1: So with nothing else to do, Dorner watched them for a while and even connected with them a little bit. Here were diligent, honest working people Those were exactly the kind of people he wanted to protect when he joined the force. In the meantime, the authorities searched every nook and cranny of Big Bear. All told, the police canvassed at least eight square miles of forest in the bitter cold. But somehow they missed the small Mountain Vista resort. Dorner remained at large, a threat to their lives and their reputation. Again, thanks to his 21-page manifesto.
0: Like we talked about in our previous episode, Dorner had railed against what he called, quote, the cycle of racism in the LAPD. And, as you know, this was all in a document he'd published on Facebook. In it, he asserted that nearly every officer was guilty of either perpetuating corruption or of staying silent in the face of rampant injustice, including discrimination based on race.
1: Addressing his former comrades, Dorner wrote... Luckily, I don't have to lie every day like most of you. Concerned if the misconduct you were a part of is going to be discovered. Looking over your shoulder, scurrying at every phone call from Internal Affairs or from the Captain's office.
0: The picture he painted was of an LAPD teeming with unethical practices. And it was harsh. The department was likely motivated to deny his allegations. But for many who remembered the LAPD's past, Dorner's words rang very true. For example, Dorner's manifesto referenced the brutal beating of Rodney King. In 1991, King, a black man, was pulled over for driving while intoxicated. He was ordered out of his car and onto the ground, where police struck him repeatedly as he lay helpless. The blows were so severe, he suffered broken bones and permanent brain damage camera footage of the assault was leaked, confirming the abuse claims against the department. Afterwards, and only due to the video as some claim, four officers were charged with using excessive force, but they were soon acquitted by a majority white jury. Public rage over the verdict sparked the infamous LA riots.
1: In the year 2000, the US Department of Justice got involved, overseeing a series of reforms to the LAPD. Karen Bates, a journalist for NPR, reported that Department of Justice liaisons believed the reforms had been effective in reducing officer misconduct.
0: Even so, Dorner's crusade brought up memories of the LAPD's past scandals. Many Angelenos understood his rage. Some even created Facebook pages cheering him on.
1: Of course, the vast majority of people condemned Dorner's violence. There weren't many who endorsed his actions, even among those with their own bone to pick with the police.
0: But when it came to his accusations of corruption and discrimination, it all came down to who you believed. The city was divided. One side were those who didn't trust Dorner because he was a cold-blooded killer. On the other were skeptics who couldn't believe the LAPD's side of the story either because of its past.
1: So, back in Big Bear in February of 2013, the department's task was clear – hunt Dorner down. The longer the killer was at large, the more the LAPD's reputation suffered, and the more danger its officers were in.
0: But while the public debate raged, Dorner was biding his time. By that point, he may have been restless. Dorner probably hadn't expected to stay hidden in the inn for so long, especially with around 200 officers patrolling the city day and night. But like any soldier, he was ready to act at a moment's notice.
1: On February 12th, he heard sounds outside the entrance of Unit 203, a couple of officers maybe, and then the creak of the front door. Dorner cocked his gun. He quietly got to his feet and waited in the hallway, ready to mow down any cop who showed his face. If he wanted to get the jump on them, now was the time. He whipped around a corner pointing his handgun, and within moments he came face to face with a woman in her 50s, Karen Reynolds. Karen froze. Dorner could hear a man in the next room fiddling with a curtain rod, totally oblivious. He leveled his pistol as Karen yelped, spun around, and tried to run. She was halfway outside when she froze for a fraction of a second, giving Dorner time to reach her. He grabbed her arm, hard. There was no escape.
2: Coming up, the final showdown. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. deputy marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free. Only on Spotify. And now, back to the story.
0: After fleeing to Big Bear, California, Christopher Dorner hid out in a vacant room at the Mountain Vista Resort. What follows is the perspective of owners Karen and Jimmy Reynolds, as told to and reported by the LA Times.
1: On February 12, 2013, Karen and Jim came to Unit 203 for a little routine maintenance. For the past few years, the couple had managed the resort as something to do in their retirement. As they climbed the stairs that day, they had no idea they'd find a killer ex-cop squatting in their place. As Dorner held them at gunpoint, Karen and Jim sat quietly, completely terrified. It was two retirees against the most wanted, trained killer in Southern California. Dorner was more talkative than they expected. He insisted he wasn't out to kill them. They had the wrong idea. He just wanted to clear his name. He told them about the yacht owner he held hostage a few days earlier and how he spared the man's life. Dorner insisted he didn't want to hurt Karen and Jim, but he needed their car, and that meant he had to tie them up. He fastened zip ties around their wrists, the pistol brushed against them as he worked. With each passing moment, the couple likely fought back their panic. They could see a kitchen knife on the dresser and worried Dorner was going to hack them to pieces. They each thought about doing something drastic, but it seemed like there was no escape. They were frozen in fear, and the whole time, Dorner kept talking. He told the couple he'd spotted them from the window. He'd seen them cleaning up the property over the past few days. He called them good people, hard workers. Somehow, knowing that a killer thought well of them didn't exactly calm Jim and Karen down. Once Dorner brought out the pillowcases, The couple was more certain than ever that they were goners. They tried not to cry as they stuffed washcloths in their mouths and secured the gags with electrical cords. The pillowcases went over the tops of their heads. Lights out.
0: He also took the keys to their purple Nissan Rogue and snagged Karen's cell phone from her pocket. His final order was to tell them to be quiet, just long enough for him to escape. In darkness, they waited until his footsteps faded down the stairs. After some time had passed, the couple tried to wriggle free. Still blinded by the pillowcase, Karen leaned down and felt for her husband's fingers. With some struggling, he was able to slip the fabric off her head. She did the same for him and staggered to her feet.
1: Looking around, Karen saw the glint of a butcher knife on top of the dresser. She hopped toward it and put the handle in her mouth. She thought maybe she could cut the zip ties with it.
0: The plan just wasn't practical. Dorner had tied them up tight, but in his rush to leave, he hadn't thought of everything.
1: For some reason, he left Karen's phone in plain view on the table. She hopped to it and turned herself around. With her hands still tied behind her back, she fumbled with the touchscreen. It took some effort, especially to find the speakerphone button. But eventually she managed to dial 911 and told the operator everything. If you recall, this is where we left things off at the end of part one. At this point, less than 30 minutes had passed since Dorner left. So the police knew this was their best chance to end things once and for all.
0: The manhunt kicked back into high gear.
1: Police all over Big Bear got the message through their radios. Dorner was on the move in a purple Nissan. They figured he was trying to skip town. So, officers dispersed, hoping to block all exits in the mountain community. On Highway 38, a couple of wildlife wardens pitched in to help some deputies lay down spike strips. They spread them across the narrow two-lane highway and dropped the heavy equipment onto the icy road.
0: Once it was all said and done, it would be an ideal choke point. Towering trees and uneven, rocky terrain lay on both sides of the road. Dorner wouldn't have an easy time avoiding the spikes, even if he saw them coming. But before they finished setting the strips up, one of the wardens caught sight of a couple of school buses down the road. Right behind them, there was a flash of purple, Dorner's Nissan. He was tailgating the buses, trying to hide behind them. The wardens and officers scrambled back into their cars.
1: Just then, Dorner slammed on the gas, swerving around the buses. The chase was on, and the suspect sped right past the authorities. Luckily, the police picked up his trail about a mile down the road. It was hard to miss. Dorner had slid on the ice and slammed into a snowdrift. Officers raced to the crash site, but the killer was nowhere to be found.
0: In the chaos, he'd abandoned the car and most of his remaining supplies, including a mean-looking sniper rifle. On the side of the stock, Dorner had carved a message in jagged letters. It spelled out one word in all caps, VENGEANCE.
1: Police raised their rifles. They scanned the snowbanks, looking for signs of life. Down the road, a few other wardens were also driving around, searching for Dorner. As a Dodge pickup truck passed them, one of them noticed who was behind the wheel. In the span of a couple of minutes, Dorner had somehow already hijacked another vehicle, One of the wardens reached for his radio to alert his comrades. Just then, Dorna swung an AR-15 out of the window and started blasting. The wardens ducked down and drove straight through the blizzard of bullets.
0: Though it might seem counterintuitive, police training advises officers to drive through an ambush whenever possible. Suddenly stopping or attempting to turn around without getting to safety first only gives the assailants more time to inflict harm. So the wardens followed protocol. Dorner's bullets shattered their car windows and covered them in glass. But they got lucky there were no serious injuries.
1: They turned around once they were safely out of Dorner's range. One of them hopped out of the vehicle and shot at Dorner's pickup with an assault rifle. He emptied an entire clip into the rear bumper. No good. The truck drove out of sight.
0: Within minutes, more police were speeding towards Highway 38. One of them was Deputy Jeremiah McKay. He'd been focused on this case for days. Like many officers, he likely saw Dorner's rampage as a personal attack. And he wanted to be the one that put an end to the killing, no matter the cost. When a colleague suggested that the officer who finally found Dorner would be in the most danger of being killed, McKay wasn't phased. According to the LA Times, he told his friend, quote, I'm going to get him, he's a cop killer. McKay had grown up near Big Bear, so he jumped at the chance to be the one to face Dorner there.
1: Blood pumping, McKay approached a section of the road where a couple of other officers were already searching. They'd already gotten out of their cars and marched through the snow, guns at the ready. One of them was Detective Alex Collins. Collins looked down the side of his rifle, scanning for movement on the road. For a moment, he thought of his wife and their new baby back at home. As soon as this was all over, he'd pull out his phone, tucked in his chest pocket, and give them a call. However, seconds later, he thought he saw something flint to the side. And then, impact! A bullet shot through his front teeth, his jaw shattered. It felt like he'd been uppercutted with a cinder block. He probably didn't have time to process the pain before his mouth went numb. A second shot hit him below the knee. He staggered as a third hit him square in the torso. His leg burned, his chest stung. More bullets narrowly whizzed by. Despite the pain, he gathered enough strength to roll behind a car. As he tried to catch his breath, his vision blurred. He knew he didn't have much time before he bled out. He thought of his wife again. He reached for his cell phone, but the screen was shattered. It had deflected one of Dorna's bullets, saving Collins' life. The goodbyes would have to wait. He wasn't gone yet.
0: Jeremiah McKay saw Collins go down and knew he needed to act quickly. He radioed a rescue chopper to save his comrade. Without knowing exactly where the bullets were coming from, he had to peek out from behind cover to direct the chopper to their location to save Colin's life. In that single second, Dorner fired again. He struck McKay in the chest and the deputy collapsed. McKay was dead.
1: Moments later, more officers arrived. They threw smoke grenades to block Dorner's line of sight. Then they rushed Detective Collins to the hospital. By that point, he was delirious. He blamed himself for not taking Dorner down. He told his fellow officers he was sorry.
0: Back at the scene, the authorities could now tell where the barrage of bullets was coming from, a small cabin tucked into an icy forest. They wasted no time forming a perimeter with around 40 officers. It seemed like Dorner was trapped. Even so, it still wasn't safe to approach. He was a well-trained marksman, and as he'd already proven, a force to be reckoned with. And there could be hostages inside as well. Law enforcement were able to figure out who the owner was and gave him a call. He told them the cabin should have been empty when Dorner found it. Hearing that, the cops breathed a little easier. They might not have to worry about civilian casualties after all. Now, officers were champing at the bit to take Dorner down, but the officials in charge knew the safest option was to take things slow. After about an hour, they urged Dorner to surrender via loudspeaker. When he didn't answer, they launched tear gas into the cabin. That didn't flush him out either.
1: By this point, Dorner's back was against the wall. It was one man against many. So around 4 p.m., he set off a smoke grenade, trying to obscure the officer's vision.
0: It didn't accomplish much. Dorner had to know his time was coming to an end. His only options were to surrender or to prolong the siege. He had some food with him, so he might have been able to stick it out for a few days, but he couldn't keep things going forever. And the police knew that too. Still, they wanted to speed things up. Night would fall soon, and no one wanted to find out what Dorner was capable of in the dark.
1: Coming up, Fire and Brimstone. And now, the end of the story.
0: During his rampage, 33-year-old Christopher Dorner killed two police officers and put two more in the hospital. He took three civilians hostage and killed two others. He was dangerous, he was trained, and according to his manifesto, he was willing to die for his vendetta.
1: Now, after nearly 10 days, the police had him trapped in Big Bear, California, and they decided that taking the killer down sooner was better than later. They didn't have long before the sun set, and they weren't going to risk Dorner escaping through the forest in the dark. It was time for extreme measures.
0: They'd already tried standard tear gas on the cabin. Now, officers prepared to fire CS gas. This compound is a type of tear gas. Exposure causes severe burning in the eyes and throat, leading to pain and uncontrollable coughing. Breathe in enough of it and the chemical will spread to the lungs. It'll feel like suffocating. Inhale a little more and respiratory failure is a possibility. But there's one more feature of CS gas. It gives off intense heat and is highly flammable. So much so that the grenade-like canisters are nicknamed burners and are known for suddenly starting fires. Journalists, criminal justice professors, and social media users alike have speculated that before they launched the gas, the cops knew a blaze would likely engulf the cabin. That said, a spokesperson for the San Bernardino police would later tell the press that they were not trying to set the cabin on fire.
1: Regardless, if Dorner stayed inside now, he'd either choke or burn. Canister after canister flew toward the building. Dozens of police officers aimed their gun at the door as the gas dispersed. They watched as heat radiated from the burners. Soon, it ignited the building's wooden exterior. Fire snaked up the beams to the rafters. The blaze consumed one wall, then another, then another. And still no sign of Christopher Dorner. Then around 4.20 p.m., a pistol shot rang out from inside.
0: After that, nothing could be heard over Dorner's stockpile of rifle shells exploding like firecrackers. Law enforcement listened, waiting for the flames to totally consume the cabin. While the authorities denied the fire was intentional, recordings of police radio transmissions revealed they were at least happy to let it burn. They wanted to make sure the flames reached every square inch of the place, to vaporize the man that had terrorized them for the past 10 days, to try and erase what he'd done. Only when the smoke cleared did they finally approach.
1: Officials entered the cabin and descended into the basement. There, they identified Dorner's burnt body. An autopsy found that he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound.
0: For the families of his victims, the conclusion was a morbid relief. Police officers across the country celebrated as the chase came to a close. Once the media frenzy died down, a feeling of calm settled over Los Angeles. Christopher Dorner was gone. But while the killing spree was done, he'd left scars behind.
1: Officer Andrew Takias was wounded when Dorner fired on him and killed his partner, Michael Crane, at a red light. He lost the use of his left arm and most of his right as well. The shooting traumatized him. The LA Times reported that he doesn't often feel up to talking about it, even years later. Detective Collins, who sustained three bullet wounds during the final showdown with Derner, miraculously survived. His phone had deflected what would have been a fatal bullet. He needed 20 surgeries and significant rehab to heal. But in time, he was able to walk again. Doctors called his recovery a miracle. He went back to the force in September 2013. But it wasn't just the physical wounds or even the psychological impact on Dorner's victims that had to be reckoned with. His words hadn't been forgotten either.
0: Ever since Dorner posted his infamous manifesto, Teresa Evans, the training officer who was the initial target of Dorner's rage, had spent her days locked in a hotel room at an undisclosed location. Every passing hour left her agonized. Every little noise had her fearing for her life. The terror didn't go away when Dorner's cabin burned either, because now her name was the one on the line. For critics of the LAPD, Evans had become a symbol of police brutality. According to the LA Times, some graffiti found near her police station read, Terry Evans is a liar. It took a while for Evans to return to the force. When she did, she found she just couldn't do it anymore. She couldn't even be sure her fellow officers trusted her. So she left the department.
1: In 2015, Evans, who was white, sued the LAPD for racial harassment. She claimed that she was discriminated against by her supervisors because of her race and her association with Dorner. She said she was made a scapegoat after Dorner's rampage and that her opportunities for promotion all but evaporated.
0: L.A. County Superior Courts later dismissed the case.
1: But now, let's take it back a bit to 2013. Soon after the manhunt, the LAPD launched a review of Dorner's dismissal. They vowed to look into the claims of his manifesto and the circumstances that led to his firing, including the accusation against Evans.
0: Critics cried foul. Some called for the Department of Justice to intervene with its own investigation, as it did back in the year 2000. Others suggested a third-party organization should oversee the process. For example, Jasmine Kanick, a columnist and community activist, she had harsh words for the department, saying, quote, "...having the LAPD conduct an internal investigation is like asking Bonnie to investigate Clyde." It was a sentiment shared by many, and the criticism only grew five months later when they completed their review.
1: Internal investigators determined that Dorner had lied when he claimed Therese Evans used excessive force in 2007. They once again found his firing was, without a doubt, justified.
0: These findings really didn't sit right with many in the public, but even more frustrating was the lack of significant reform. Connie Rice, a civil rights attorney, has a lifetime of experience collaborating with communities of color and police groups in Los Angeles. She told an LA Times reporter, quote, the community still sees the same hyper-aggressive preemptive policing. And she concluded with, people are dying because they had a broken taillight. Police are still on a mission of search and destroy. Rice believes that at the top of the LAPD are officials who want to make real change but that philosophy doesn't necessarily penetrate the lower ranks of the force.
1: Former LAPD chief, Charlie Beck, who took charge of the department in between Dorner's firing and the manhunt, seemed to agree. He felt some issues in the LAPD arose from a warrior mindset, one that began when he was just starting his career in law enforcement. He believed that declaring war on drugs and gangs, as the department did during the 80s and 90s, was a mistake. He said, you can't declare war without creating a soldier mentality. And once you begin demonizing people, you run the risk of becoming a demon yourself.
0: It's easy to see Christopher Dorner might have fallen victim to that mindset Charlie Beck mentioned. Instead of reaching out to the community for support, he turned his issue into a war. He divided people into enemies and non-combatants. He viewed the situation as a violent contest, instead of a collaborative human struggle for rights and dignity. And in doing so, he forgot an essential truth. The culture of discrimination in law enforcement agencies affects us all.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Christopher Dorner, we found the Los Angeles Times article, The Manhunt for Christopher Dorner, by Christopher Goffer, Joel Rubin, and Kurt Streeter, extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Stay safe out there.
1: Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Terrell Wells, edited by Ben Caro and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Brian Petris and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Vanessa Richardson and me, Greg Polson.
2: I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. deputy marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, Listen for free only on Spotify.